You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you will, with me to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, in just a moment, as we look at Matthew chapter 1, um, I, I just have to say, let's, let's be honest. If, if you've ever found yourself reading through any of the genealogies in the Bible, you, you've probably at least been tempted, if not succumbed to it yourself, the temptation to, to skip over the genealogies. Any, anybody, anybody else? Yeah, uh, okay. There's a couple of honest folks in here. Now, this, this particular genealogy, along with the one in the Gospel of Luke, is building that of Jesus. How does Jesus come on the scene um, in the biblical account? Now, Matthew includes in his genealogy something that is kept from most, if not all, the ancient Near Eastern cultures, and that is women. Uh, he includes women. Matthew records Five women in the line of Jesus, and that's what we've been looking at as a church for the last couple of weeks. And uh, while it's already out of the norm to mention women at all in these accounts, these aren't even the women that we would be expect to have been mentioned. You would have expected the, the matriarchs like uh, Rebecca and Sarah and perhaps Leah, but we get Tamar and Rahab, Bathsheba. And next week, you'll hear about Ruth. Uh, these are the kinds of stories, uh, we've already encountered a couple, that you would hide if they were a part of your family, if that was a part of your lineage, that you would be like hiding from your family. Now, I, don't, I don't want this information to get out. Some of it is incredibly shameful, ho- hoping that no one would ever find these things about you and how you came to be and how you came to exist. And yet, these are the women that God inspired his word to be written about. He breathed these very words out so that we might know him and that we might understand his purposes for us in this world. These are the women in which he brought forth the redeemer of the world. Now, if you're able, if you're with me here uh, physically or you're joining with us online, would would you just stand with me as we honor the reading? of God's word this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter one, and I'm going to look, we're going to read verses one through six. If you'll just uh, listen as I read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram and Ram, the father of Amminadab and Amminadab, the father of Nashon and Nashon, the father of Salmon and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We we read it quickly, but did you notice notice anything in particular about the woman mentioned in verse 6? Anything in particular there? The, The other women that Matthew writes about, They are explicitly named, but the woman that we're going to be talking about this morning is known as what? The wife of Uriah. And so we we must think as we read this text, there must be more to the story. Why in the world is she named 
the wife of Uriah. Why don't we get her name? Thankfully, there is more to the story. So let's turn over to 2 Samuel. We're going to find out more to that story. 2 Samuel, if you're, in, uh, uh, if you're holding a Bible, uh, a paper Bible, it's over to the left a bit. 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I'm going to walk us through these two chapters. Really, this is the story of Bathsheba and David. Uh, you'll hear a lot about David. After all, he's the king. He's the one that the story is focusing in on, and he is the one that we'll see in the account that is held accountable by God. And uh, our time this morning will be divided into three scenes. The first is the pain. We'll see pain, and second, we'll see the prophet. Um, many of you know who the prophet is that's going to come and, and speak to David, and then we'll see the promise of God. And I want us to see in the text this morning, loud and clear, that Jesus is coming to justify the unjust, that Jesus is coming to justify the unjust. First, we see the pain in chapter 11. Look there in the text with me, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites, and they besieged Reba. but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, here's David. We, many of us in the room know about David. He's the, the shepherd boy who became king. He was the brave warrior who defeated Goliath. He's the one which God calls a man after his own heart. We, we know who David is. He's successful. He's powerful. He has favor with God. And here in verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, David is lazy. David's lazy. At a time, the text says, when kings go out with their people to battle, what does David do? He stays home. He neglects his own people. He neglects God's own people for his own pleasure. While his people were at work, if he had such a thing, he would have decided to stay back and watch Netflix and play video games. The king who is supposed to care for his people, the king who is supposed to love his people, the king who has the responsibility to protect his people, to be on the forefront with his people, does what? He stays at home. He neglects his responsibilities for his own pleasure. Perhaps David, I, we don't know. Maybe he thinks he's already done enough for his people, that he deserves some time off. He's a powerful individual. He works a lot of hours. He thinks, man, m maybe I just deserve some time off. Perhaps you already know it, brothers and sisters. But the moment that you start living for yourself is the moment that you stop living for God. And so David, he just hangs back. He knows his responsibility. He knows what he's supposed to do. And he just hangs back. The text says, look there in verse two, it happened. We'll find out what happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof, a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now, we, we all face temptation we all face temptation of varying degrees. Jesus himself, the scripture tells us, faced temptation. David found himself in the middle of a temptation. And all the pieces of, of this temptation puzzle were, were given there. And they, they were all in place for him to give in. Perhaps you know those pieces all too well yourself. You have particular responsibilities that you have in your life, and you decide to neglect those responsibilities to do whatever you want to do. Anybody? Anybody ever there? 
I, I know that there are things that I'm supposed to give myself to, but I decide I'm not going to do them so that I can do whatever I want to do. And you do whatever you want to do. And after a while, you find yourself getting bored of that very thing that you decided that you wanted to do. Video games get old after a while, right? You can only scroll so many times on your Instagram feed before you're tired, before you've seen the same thing over and over again. You can only work on that old beater of a car for so long. You name it. Whatever that time waster is in your life. David was on his couch. He had already neglected the responsibility that God had given him, and he got bored. And he sees this very attractive woman from afar, his rooftop The palace that King David lived in would have given him this vantage point. He could have seen all across the city. And so it gave him this tremendous view and this particular beautiful woman catches his eye. And he has, like you and I so often have, he has a decision to make in that moment. And I, I, can either, I can either do something about this temptation, I can give in to the temptation, or I can do what? I can give in to what the Holy Spirit is calling me to do in that moment, and I cannot give in to that temptation. James 1, verses 14 and 15 gives us this process. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. David makes his decision. He had the opportunity to go the other way, but he makes his decision in verse three. Look there in the text with me. It says, and David sent and inquired about the woman. Who is she? Can you get some more information on her? Do we have any friends in common? He gets a response. Isn't she Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam? The wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, when we read that, if, if we don't know much about what's going on in, in that particular moment, it just sounds like some names to us. We, we hear some names, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But later in 2 Samuel chapter 23, we see that Eliam and Uriah both are some of David's mighty men. They're like the top 30 of all of David's warriors. David should have heard that in this moment. He should have heard that and he should have snapped out of it. He should have realized that that particular response from those individuals, hey, these these are some of your closest people. This this woman that you're looking at, she, she is the wife of one of your closest warriors. He should have heard that as the mercy of God in the moment and he should have snapped out of it. He should have said, oh, thank you. I don't know what I was thinking. I can't believe that I was about to sin against God. I can't believe that I was about to destroy a family in which I love so deeply. But verse four tells us otherwise, doesn't it? So David sent messengers and took her. Now that word in the Hebrew is literally seize or take captive And she came to him, the text says, and he lay with her. Now, David, a married man, has now committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Now, the text gives us this parenthetical note from the author, a reminder of what Bathsheba had been doing later in verse 4. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Now, the text doesn't really give us anything from Bathsheba's perspective. We don't know what she thought. We don't know what she was thinking. We don't know how she perceived David's actions. But the text seems to indicate that Bathsheba was attempting to honor the Lord 
in the cleansing that she was supposed to do according to the law of God, while David was dishonoring the Lord in abandoning his duty as king to lead out in the battle and forgetting his responsibilities to lead as a husband. Do you hear that? Bathsheba then returns to her house after the sin has been committed. We don't, we don't know what the time lapse here is, but verse five says that Bathsheba sent and told David this particular phrase that changes the rest of the story. I am pregnant. You ever find yourself caught in sin, family? You ever, you ever find yourself caught, let's say, in a lie? And you think for a split second, I could confess this right now. I, I know that I have done wrong. I know that I've sinned against a holy God. And I have in this moment the ability to confess. I'll pay for it. There will be consequences. I know it. But it could be over right now. But sometimes we decide that we want to give in to temptation and we want to sin. And so you make the decision in that moment to quench the work of the Spirit in your heart. And then afterwards, what happens when you've decided to do that? You get caught in the first lie. You decide to continue forward and not repent. What do you do again? You lie again, don't you? You find yourself lying again to cover up the first lie. And then again and again, verse 6 says, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. David gets to see Uriah, one of his most trusted soldiers, remember? And he begins to small talk with him. This seems like a terribly awkward scene as you and I, the readers, know exactly what is happening and what has happened. And so he's saying, hey, how is Joab doing? How are the people doing? How's the war going? David's trying to make small talk with one of his 30 most trusted warriors because David has a plan, doesn't he? He has decided to commit sin and he wants to cover that sin up just like we saw from the very beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, right? As soon as Adam and Eve commit that first sin, they decide to start covering it up. They, in fact, they cover themselves up knowing that they've sinned against God. David has a plan. Uriah, verse eight, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah goes, even being followed, the text says, by a present from the king. Now, verse nine, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and he did not go down to his house. The next morning, David hears about this and he asks Uriah about it. Uriah is such an honorable man. Now we see, we see this as so different than what David has been doing up until this point in the text. And really, if you think about where we are in the biblical account, we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the story about Joseph. Oh, sorry, I don't know what I'm talking about. We don't find ourselves there. The next morning... David gets word of this, and Uriah asks about it. Uriah is such an honorable man. He says, look, my Lord Joab and all of our men are just sleeping in, out, in the open, on the battlefield. How in the world could I go down to my house? How could I eat dinner with my wife? How could I have relations with my wife? How in the world could I do such a thing when my men are stuck away in a field at war? He says, King David, I won't dishonor you by doing such a thing. Again, another moment for Mercy for David. He has an opportunity here yet again to stop and turn away from a sin. Uriah, you see, there is this thing that I've done. Uriah, you see, I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against your wife. I've sinned against you, and now your wife is pregnant. David decides that his way is better. 
He knows right. He knows the best way. He knows how he can get out of this. So you stay here today, verse 12, and tomorrow I'll send you back, David says to Uriah. So King David invites Uriah in. They eat and they drink together that night and David gets Uriah drunk. He's hoping, he's hoping that in an altered state, uh, Uriah will actually change his mind and that he'll go down and he will spend time with his wife. That next morning though, that has not happened. And so David writes a letter to Joab and he gives it to Uriah to take him. Verse 15, in the letter he wrote, says this, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Uriah hands Joab his death note unknowingly. And sure enough, Uriah the Hittite dies and a whole bunch of other men as well. Joab and David have this back and forth coded communication in the text through a servant getting word to one another about what has happened, that Uriah is in fact dead and the deed is done. Another sin, lie upon lie, deceit upon deceit, more pain. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband was dead, she lamented like any wife would over her dead husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. And in the case the reader on God's, in case we're confused on God's heart in this matter, the text says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This was sinful this was wrong in the eyes of God. Again, we don't have much in regards to Bathsheba. You say, was, was she complicit in David's sin? I don't know. The text doesn't bring any real clarity to that. But it is telling that David alone is accountable for his sin here. We'll see that in just a minute. Now, there is some more time in between chapters 11 and 12. We don't know exactly how much, but David writes elsewhere about what's going on within him internally in this moment. And where, where did it get him? David writes in Psalm 32, verse 3, about this time. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You see, the guilt of David's sin was eating him up. It was causing him internal pain, but it was getting physical now. He was losing weight. He couldn't sleep. He had no more energy. He had no more strength. And before we move on from here in the text, if you're experiencing the effects of unconfessed sin in your life, the Lord is giving you in this moment mercy. Mercy to confess your sin. Mercy in this moment to repent of your sin and turn towards God. Not everyone you see is made aware of their sin. Not everyone realizes the weight of their sin and how it affects God and how it affects you. Some have hardened their hearts so much so that they will never turn from their sin to the point of no return. Some are callous towards sin and they won't turn to God. Maybe you're here or you're watching online today and you find yourself in the middle of sexual sin, any sin, but sexual sin like David and the lies are getting too much to manage. Maybe that's you. The deception is exhausting. And it affects you. You know that. David experienced that physical 
pain. He experienced that physical exhaustion. But not only did it, does it affect you, I want you to hear this, brother or sister. It doesn't just affect you when you find yourself in unconfessed, unrepentant sin. It affects your wife if you find yourself married. It affects your husband if you're married. It affects your friends. It affects the body of Christ that we have here in Locust Grove. And so if you find yourself in the middle of unrepentant sin, it is not just you that it is affecting. There are so many people that find themselves in the aftermath of your sin. And if you hear this today, if the Spirit of God is convicting of you of that, would you just repent? This is a moment of mercy for you. I pray this would be a day that you turn from your sin, that you confess it, that you go to God, that you go to your wife, that you go to your spouse, that you go to your brothers and sisters in the church, that you find yourself in a DNA group and you would confess that sin, confess it before the Lord and you would walk in light today. Now, David had been given, you've heard it in the text. He had been given opportunity after opportunity to turn from his sin to stop the lies, to stop the deception, but he didn't believe, hear this, because this is where we often find ourselves when we, when we are in sin and in a pattern of sin that we aren't getting out of. David, David didn't believe that his sin was as great as it was that he could keep it to himself, that it wouldn't affect him, that it wouldn't affect anybody else. More than that, he didn't believe that his God was as great as he is, but he is, and he was. And thankfully, the scriptures tell us that God chastises those whom he loves. Are you a recipient of that chastisement here this morning? You know that God has loved you because he's chased you down in your sin, that there was this moment, that there are moments in your life that he finds you in your sin, that he reveals your sin to you. Praise God for that chastisement, that he, that he goes and finds the one he loves and he sees that they would repent. And we'll, we'll see that in just a moment. And so we move from the pain in chapter 11 to the prophet in chapter 12. David has done wicked things. A woman, Bathsheba, has been invited into his very own sinful desires. Many men have been killed. We've already seen that in the text. David's crime was unjust. Thankfully, I wanted you to see this in the text this morning, that there is one who is coming to justify the unjust. Look at verse 1 with me of chapter 12. It says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, remember this, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. 
It's like we're rehearsing the same scene from Genesis chapter 38 when Judah is told that his daughter-in-law Tamar has been sexually immoral and she now finds herself pregnant and she's committed this sexual immorality and what did Judah say to her? Burn her. Throw her in the fire. This woman can't be out alive. David, too, finds himself enraged at the powerful man who took from the poor man. How could that man possibly continue to live? Now, in the body of Christ that we find ourselves in, if you're a brother or sister, if you're a member of the family of God, we're always talking about this thing uh, that is communicating the truth in love to our brothers and sisters, especially when we find one another in sin, right? And how, how do I go to my brother? How do I go to my sister and, and tell them the truth about where they are in love? How do I do that? I think that this is one of the most beautiful examples in all of scripture of this. Nathan wraps his story up with like, likely the most piercing words that David has ever heard. And he says this, David, you are that man. And then Nathan, the prophet, delivers the word of the Lord to David. I anointed you. Hear this. How would David have received this word from the Lord? I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives, the house of Israel and Judah. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah. You've taken his wife to be yours. And since you've killed with the sword of the Ammonites, now therefore, verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. Now, do you hear the Lord in that saying, David, I have given you this, and I've given you this, and I've given you this opportunity, and I have given you this woman to be your wife. I have given you an abundance of things in this life. Am I not enough? Am I not enough? The Lord continues to list the consequences of his sins. The child that Bathsheba bore dies. This time, David doesn't defend himself, though. He, he doesn't go on to another lie, does he? He doesn't go on into another moment of deception. In fact, he says to Nathan in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. When confronted with your sin, brother and sister. Do you repent? Do you repent? Do you turn from your sin and turn towards God when you're confronted in your sin? When you read the scriptures and you see the mercy of God, you see the holiness of God, you see your state before God, do you you repent of your sin? David's deception has come to an end. He's laid bare before the Lord. And just for a moment, I I want to take just a second to say it wasn't anything that David had done. It wasn't that David had conjured enough of this in this moment to say, man, I am tired of this. God had done something in his heart so that he would repent of his sin, so that he would come clean. God had changed him so that he could say, I am have sinned against the Lord. If you find yourself saying that, if you find yourself repentant, 
if you find yourself confessing of sin, would you also thank the Lord that he is merciful, that he's good to find you out, that he is good to chastise you? Thankfully, the story doesn't end here. The prophet reminds us that there is this coming promise. Nathan, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, says, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, he doesn't mean physical death, but a spiritual death. That for those who choose to remain in their sin and do not repent of sin, they will die. But for those that do, what will happen? There's life. But how? Because you and I both know that David deserves to die for his sin. We see that. And we find ourselves living in a cultural moment that, we, that our culture says we know exactly what injustice is and we know exactly how to find it out. We know, we, we see injustice and we are going to call it. Now, our culture doesn't exactly see injustice like they think they do. But we as God's people should see injustice and we should call injustice out. God's people should be able to see it, identify it, work to correct injustices. But listen, God's people, this is the beauty of this text. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is why Jesus Christ has come, is because God's people should also be the first ones to extend grace to the most offensive, to the people that have committed injustices to those who have sinned against a holy God. We should be able to extend grace not only to Bathsheba and Uriah, but to David. Does your theology allow for the vilest of sinners to receive grace? Does your theology call you the vilest of sinners? Because just like David, you and I deserve to die as well. We are tremendous sinners. The Bible tells us that our wage due is death. And sin keeps us from a relationship with God. The question, how, is answered in the promise. The Lord has also put away your sin. You see, God is perfect and he's holy. God is light, as we saw in 1 John, and in him is no darkness at all. He's completely just. He can't and he will not let sin against him slide because sin isn't arbitrary. It must always be dealt with. You and I must come to grips with this. So how has the Lord put away David's sin? That's where the genealogy of Matthew 1 comes in. Bathsheba gives birth to another son named Solomon. Now God calls that son Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. And this son would make way for another. You you see soon there would come a perfect son, one who would be just, one who would walk in righteousness, one who would be tempted in every way yet without sin, one who would fulfill the commands of God perfectly, one who would never lie, one who would never murder, one who would never commit sexual immorality, one who would be perfect, and he would be the one who would come to die on the cross, the just for the unjust. God could put away, I need you to hear this gospel message, God could put away David's sin because he took it off of David and he placed it where? He placed it on his son, Christ Jesus. 
And Jesus Christ took his sin, David's sin, anyone who would come by faith for the forgiveness of their sins. He took your sin on himself. He bore what you and I deserve to bear for all eternity. Listen, if Nathan told David that he was the man and that was the end of the story, David would still be condemned, right? David would still be in condemnation knowing that, hey, you're the man. You sinned against God. There is nothing you can do about it. I just need you to know that you have done a terrible thing before all of these people and before a holy God. If Nathan had just said, you are the man, he would still be stuck in his sins. But he said more. He said that the Lord has not held his sin against him. David deserved for his sin to rest upon him. And that's why Bathsheba isn't listed in the genealogy in Matthew 1, so that all could plainly see there is injustice in the line of Jesus. You see, Bathsheba should have been the wife of Uriah throughout all their time here on earth. But that wasn't the case, was it? David decided to sin. He decided to sin again and again and again. And he killed that very man. He had relations with another man's wife. He committed the sin of adultery. And from that very line is produced one who would come to make all things right. Jesus came to die on the cross, the world's greatest injustice, to show the unjust grace to give grace to the sinners and those that have been sinned against. And if the Father, if you hear this today, and if the Father is drawing you to himself, perhaps you're aware of your sin in this moment, even for the first time, would you repent? Would you do that today so that you might not die but have life everlasting? And for those of us who are already in Christ, are already in the family of God, we've already been given a new heart. The promise didn't end for you when you were first saved. It didn't end just when you repented of your sins for the first time. You need the grace of God today in Christ just as much as you did then. You likely realize it all the more. And if so, if you find yourself in sin today, would you repent of it? Would you continue by faith today? Jesus Christ came, the just for the unjust, so that you might have life, that you might have freedom and that you might know the one who is. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have you've given us an opportunity this morning to look to your word, that your word has been preserved for us throughout all time so that we might even read of it today and hear about you and learn of you and your desire that sinful men and women could come in right relationship with you. And we see that you have done that through really messy situations, through sinful situations. God, I thank you that your son Christ Jesus did come, the just for the unjust that we might be reconciled and made right to you, a holy God.
God, I pray for the individual, the individuals here this morning that find themselves in the middle of patterns of sin and they, they haven't been able to get out of it. I pray that in your mercy, you would send your spirit, that they would repent of their sins and turn to you today by faith. God, I pray that you might use us in your church, brothers and sisters, to come and speak the truth in love to one another, that we would find out sin, that you would use us as your agents in this church for one another, for your glory, and that your church might be built up as a result. And if God, if, if there is anyone in here that has never repented of their sins, that they might do that today, that they might experience life that they would not spiritually die for all time, that they would not bear the sin that they deserve. We thank you, we thank you, Father, that your son Christ Jesus came and he bore our death, the death that we deserve to die. He took on your very wrath in exchange and gave us his righteousness. We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.